now, live from Level 5 Productions on the island of Milleronia, it's The Larry Miller Show! Good evening, Mr. and Mrs. America, and everyone who just loves Liberty Valance. Hi, folks. I'm Larry Miller, but in a way, aren't we all? And you know what? Welcome back. We're on the island of Milleronia now. And as you know, due to this or that, sometimes we're back on the mainland. Or sometimes in the past, I've actually done a show from a hotel room from being uh, on location on a on a on a part on a movie part or just uh just uh, on location for a stand up job but in any case we're here now it it's it's so good to be here and yes it's true boy that music and that band makes me feel so good and you too colonel jeff it makes us both smile and happy that we're on the path again on the hunt again for a good one and, of course, that's the Lemmy Killmeister Orchestra and the Maddie Agopian Dancers featuring boy tenor David Bowie asking the musical question, Is there life on Mars? Well, that was, of course, uh, one of uh, David Bowie's well songs, a great song. And uh, we're very sorry to say I am and Colonel Jeffers. Yes, he passed away this uh, past weekend, and I'm sure you know that. And, uh, well, is there life on Mars? I, you know what? First of all, I don't think so, but if you say so, it's okay with me. But I, I, here's an interesting question. Is there life on Mars? Well, I, has there always been, or is it there now? Is that what you mean? Because Matt Damon has been there, so yes. Yes, in a way, that, that means there was life on Mars. Uh, plus, he probably left behind a few of... Those lunch waitresses there who were very close to him. And uh, sorry about the word behind there. But in any case, you know what? Uh, We're very glad to know that David Bowie was in our lives the way he was. And what a a showman, what an entertainer. And, uh, well, Maggie, the second Miller dog, just came tearing into our studio here. We don't mind when she does that. Much. No, it's now she's playing Would You Like to Kill Me with the other dog, Ozzy. And uh, he, was, uh, he was lying down very peacefully, which I like in a dog. And uh, Maggie is now imploring Colonel Jeff. Oh, I love what he's doing now. Uh, Ozzy just went under the desk. I, that's a great place for him. And he hangs out there and he can sort of lean against my legs and it's a safe place for him there. He can uh, just hang out, and then Maggie, of course, can go well and find something else to kill. And uh, but of course, I mean that in the best way possible. And y- y- you know what, though, uh, this is a good time to be on the island of Milleronia. We have it. It's it's very beautiful here. Yes, it's true. I personally control the weather, but you know what? Sometimes it just happens on its own, and. Uh, Just like you and where you live, everybody, all of you listening, sometimes the weather just happens to be beautiful by by pure luck or by someone's design. And uh, 
I'm glad it is for you, too. And uh, that brings me to my favorite part of the show, the joke of the week. That's right. <laughs> well, uh, here's one that the colonel and I both liked, and uh, <laughs> he got a kick out of this, and so did I. At any rate, uh, there's a very uh, popular... And, uh, you know, a nice uh, Tony, a formal restaurant. And what do you know? In on uh, on Wednesday night comes Jesus himself, and he walks over to the podium there with the Mater D, and the Mater D, well, is astonished and shocked. And, uh, and, and Jesus just smiles and says to him, I'd like a long table for 26, please. And the Mater D sort of springs back to life and uh, and he just glances over to the group and he leans in and says to him, uh, forgive me, uh, Jesus, for, for, forgive me, but I, I, I noticed there are there are only 13 of you here. And Jesus says, oh, well, we're all going to sit on the same side. <laughs> and uh, so apparently the whole... Last Supper format was not just in the painting. That's the way they like to sit. And uh, in any case, that was cute, and I hope you like it. Uh, that brings me to my second favorite part of the show, The Poetry Corner. That was uh, well. That was a nice way, and as it as it always is. But uh, th th that's why I mentioned that the leader of the orchestra today was Lemmy Kilmeister, because uh, Colonel Jeff brought him up. Colonel Jeff really was a fan, loved Lemmy Kilmeister, who was the bass player in Motorhead, among many other things. And in fact, uh, the Colonel got to meet him several times when Lemmy came to be on uh, Adam's show, on Adam Carolla's show. And uh, he said Lemmy was the greatest guy in the world. I mean, first of all, he was a rock icon and couldn't be cooler. He used to be a roadie for Hendrix, in fact. And uh, one of Lemmy's personal quotes and mottos was, good manners don't cost nothing. And as I said to the colonel, perhaps a lesson or two in grammar, but... Other than that, they don't cost nothing. Uh, but you know what? We're proud that folks like that are in the world. Jeff loved the guy and loved having a chance to know him and be a fan of his. So for our poetry corner today, for our poem today, and this was Colonel Jeff's idea, by the way. He said, you know what? There's a great song by Motorhead called Ace of Spades. And he said, why don't you, Larry, why don't you uh, read those lyrics as the poem for today? And I said, you know what, that's a, good, that's a good idea. So here we go, folks. The first time, perhaps, for you and me. And it's called Ace of Spades. If you like to gamble, I tell you I'm your man. You win some, lose some, it's all the same to me. The pleasure is to play. Makes no difference what you say. I don't share your greed. The only card I need is the Ace of Spades. The Ace of Spades. 
playing for the high one, dancing with the devil, going with the flow, it's all a game to me. Seven or eleven, snake eyes watching you double up or quit, double stake or split. The ace of spades, the ace of spades. You know I'm born to lose and gambling's for fools, but that's the way I like it, baby. I don't want to live forever, and don't forget the joker. Pushing up the ante, I know you got to see me. Read him and weep, the dead man's hand again. I see it in your eyes. Take one look and die. The only thing you see, you know it's going to be the ace of spades. The ace of spades. So that is uh, for you folks. I hope you like that. I did. And we got, that is Lemmy passed away after Christmas sometime. Uh, just this last Christmas. And uh, I'm glad Colonel Jeff brought us all. Uh, to that. Boy, they have some interesting phrases in there, interesting uh, references uh, that read them and weep the dead man's hand again. I think the phrase dead man's hand was uh, was from Wild Bill, right? That's he, uh, when he was shot and killed in that bar, it's been known for a long time. It's the only time in his entire life he ever sat with his back to the bar. He always sat the exact opposite side, facing the bar and the whole room, because he didn't want someone sneaking up on him. And, well, someone did this time. And his hand at poker there, I think, please let us know if you uh, if it's different, but I, I believe the dead man's hand was, his. the hand he was holding was a pair of aces, and a pair of tens. The colonel just told me aces and eights with, I think I could be wrong on this, with a, with a ten. The fifth card was a ten. I think I could be, but well, I could be wrong. But aces and eights. And that became known forever. Well, and we're saying it today as the dead man's hand. Wild Bill Hickok. And, uh, well, what a story, what a life. I'm sure you've seen the specials as much as I have. But that's... Uh, that's good to know. Playing for the high one, dancing with the devil, going with the flow, it's all a game to me. Not me personally, I but I'm glad it was I'm glad it was for many. I'm glad it touched Jeff, and I'm glad he helped me bring it to you. So that brings me to the third favorite part of the show. M M M Triple M the Magic Movie Moment. Ended with my favorite piano note in history. That big low... So, in any case, the Triple M this week is a terrific movie. I've always liked this movie. From 1960, The Alamo. And it was starring... And directed by John Wayne. Well, what a cast. Lawrence Harvey, Richard Widmark, Richard Boone, Frankie Avalon as Smitty. I just wanted to let you know that because I thought it was cute. The names sometimes in movies. Hey, where's Smitty? Well, he's over there. It's Frankie Avalon. And uh, Ken Curtis. Oh, what a great actor. And so many others. And the wonderful Joan O'Brien. And I'm going to tell you a little about her in a second. But uh, 
It's a terrific movie. Now, uh, Billy Bob Thornton uh, made a, a, a terrific movie about the Alamo again about 10 years ago. A little more than that, 2004. And a great cast in that one, too. And very well done. I thought it was awfully well done. Andy Garcia was in that one, too. And, uh, and uh, oh, so many others. But you know what? Uh, I think the great movie is the... Uh, the one by John Wayne. And uh, I know I may be a sucker for his stuff, but I'm glad I am. And there's a great magic movie moment in this. Lawrence Harvey, who was a great actor uh, and, and was playing Colonel Travis, who was commanding the Alamo in, the, in, the, in their, well, I was going to call it a fort, but it wasn't really a very good fort. It wasn't put together that well. And Lawrence Harvey, as things are going well downhill for all the fellas there at the Alamo. And uh, as it's going downhill, Lawrence Harvey finds out that his last attempt to get help from outside forces, and uh, from Richard Boone, in fact, who plays Sam Houston, and this is terrific and everything, but Lawrence Harvey knows the men are getting discontented and... Frankly, they're getting a little worried. Some of them have their families there, and uh, they don't like the way things are turning. They're very brave fighters. But Lawrence Harvey asks all the men to come out into the courtyard, all the men. And he lines them up at attention, and he draws a line in the sand, so to speak, uh, with the toe of his boot. And he speaks to the men, and he tells them, You are great soldiers. And you are great fighters. And that's why we have survived this long. And that's why we have done the damage we've done. But I know you've heard some of the news as we've gone along. And it's not looking good. And so I'm telling all of you, with my full heart, if you want to leave now, if you want to, well, say we've fought enough, it's time to go, and there are still, well, as you know from history, there are still 5,000 Mexican soldiers under uh, uh, under General Santa Ana out there. And they mean business. And he says to the soldiers, his soldiers, step over this line and you may all go. And there is nothing held against you. I will shake hands with you and, uh, and I'm, I'm grateful to know you. We're going to stay here. But whatever you want to do, just step over that line if you want to go. And uh, it's very well shot by director John Wayne there. And none of the men step over the line. It's not heavy-handed. It's not covered with sugar. It just lives as the moment, which is a true story from the actual Alamo, by the way. None of the men step over the line. There's a pause there of several seconds, and they all just still stand at attention, and we are very touched by what they did. And that's that's a movie moment. That's a magic movie moment to me, and I hope it is to you too. And then the reason I mentioned the lovely Joan O'Brien, the great actress, uh, for well, what I will call the real magic movie moment in this, Joan, I believe it's Joan. I could be wrong. She was playing, she was the actress playing Mrs. Sue Dickinson in this, 
who was uh, the great Ken Curtis's wife. He was uh, Captain Dickinson, I believe it was. And uh, at the end of the movie, at the end of the Alamo, it's all happened. It's all done. Everyone has been killed as we knew they would. But it's still a shock every time. And Santa Ana decides to let... There's a handful of wives and a handful of children who were hiding in one of the one of the food rooms there or one of the ammo rooms in the Alamo. And Santa Anna decides to let them go, to let the women and children go and go back to their lives in what he thought was going to be Texas at that point. And they go out, they walk out, no, they march out in a way, in a single line. And there's a couple of donkeys with them and there's some children on the donkeys and the women walk by and I believe it's Joan O'Brien. I could be wrong, but uh, I think it is she who playing Mrs. Dickinson and she's leading the pack, if I recall correctly. And she, God bless her, is, uh, well, about 5'10", tall and uh, blonde, blue eyes and just beautiful. And she's wearing one of those skirts that goes down to the ground and uh, a blouse that goes up up to the neck. And one more thing about her. She's, well, she's very well built. She's very nicely constructed. Bless her heart. And uh, And every time, even when I was a kid, when I used to see her marching, and, you know, I used to think to myself, she's the one marching out, leading the pack. And I wanted to, to yell to Santa Anna and all his soldiers to say, yeah, what do you think of that? Huh? Can't make those, can you? We can all the time, one right after another. What do you think? Huh? Because, again, God bless her, she was uh, very well built and nicely dressed in this. That no doubt was due to John Wayne, too. But I'm telling you, folks, when she walks out leading the pack, you, you do want to say, you know what? You're going to be seeing a lot more of those. You don't know it now. You think you've done something so tough. Well, you haven't. It, it took a million of you to get our 90 guys. But you really do get, gets, well, you, it makes your blood rise over that. And God bless her when uh, Joan O'Brien walks out, and I think it was she, when Joan O'Brien walks out leading the pack and leading everything, so to speak, that's that's a good way to end that movie, I think, or any movie. You know, you could you could have uh, the Poseidon adventure. You could still end with Joan marching out as soon as they get to the dock, walk down the ramp, and uh, with a kid on a donkey. But really, it's a very sweet moment and very touching and very affecting. As I said, when I was a kid, when I was a teenager, when I was a young adult, when I'm a full-blown big boy now, and uh, you know what? I see that scene and her working out. I have watched that movie to see that scene. And it's a very good movie and very touching and very true and very great, great honor to what had happened in for real with our soldiers and when Texas was still briefly its own republic. 
and uh, the soldiers were all killed that way. But uh, Mrs. Sue Dickinson lived on with a big wink and a hot cha-cha. And I think, in reality, the Mexican soldiers would have to be thinking, hey, she's 5'10", and we're 4'10". Now, why does that help? We we have no shot with her. What have we done here? And John Wayne, he was 6'4". So, in any case, if you haven't seen the Alamo in a while... As I said, the Billy Bob Thornton one is very good. Very, very good. Dennis Quaid is in that, too. It's a terrific movie. But I think the one to see also is the John Wayne movie, The Alamo. And uh, it's funny, too, because I have, well, a book-slash-magazine or magazine-slash-book. I'm looking at right now. It's on my desk. I got it at Ralph's. A couple of days ago, Ralph's is uh, our supermarket here in Southern California. When I get back to the mainland, the first thing I do is go to Ralph's. And uh, they're not a sponsor, so I'm not getting anything from saying that. And they have this, you know, by, by cash registers, you know, they always have all sorts of things. They're called impulse items. And you're supposed to do, well, exactly what I did, what what you do, too. You, you pick up something, they have the... Uh, the newspapers like the National Enquirer there. And those are those are catchy, as you know. They get you with some some good headlines there on those. And uh and all all sorts of things. And bags of potato chips and candy bars. But this one was there. The it's I'm reading from the cover, the special newsweek edition, John Wayne. And uh, they have underneath that uh, they have well, a big portrait of him, a color portrait. With the, uh, it says, The Unstoppable Legacy of America's Favorite Cowboy. And underneath that, 60 Years of the Searchers. And, you know, folks, I I love movies. I love being in movies. I love that we all love seeing movies. And it's a big part of our country. It's a good way to tell a story. It's a good way to tell history. And... Well, folks, I'll tell you what, this, you know, this guy, John Wayne, and this magazine, we're going to put some, uh, Colonel Jeff and I are going to put some pictures from it, because there's, they're so good, and uh, this guy, who was a football player, an, ex- an excellent football player, and then got a scholarship to USC, he was born in Winterset, Iowa, I think it was, and then he... He well, he grew up and played football there, and was uh, was uh, Marion Michael Morrison. That was his name, and uh, my mom's name was Marion too. And uh, I, I don't know if they met in the middle on that, but I'll tell you that uh, when he was still a kid, his Airedale, his dog, passed away, and the dog's name was Duke. I I mean it, and I hope you know this about John Wayne, that anyone around the world would see John Wayne, and he was very accessible like that. He would go to restaurants and bars and just uh, walk in. Can you imagine? Holy mackerel, that's John Wayne. And they thought he was not only an American. They they thought he was America. They could say hi, and uh, Wayne and his, uh, his, his wife or his friends— or on a movie set, they would uh, 
They'd go to restaurants, bars, and he always wanted, I was reading in this magazine, it talks about how he always wanted a, dist a distillery. He wanted a whiskey distillery for bourbon and tequila. And his son, Ethan, who uh, was named, by the way, after his character in The Searchers, he intentionally named that son Ethan. His name was Ethan Edwards in that movie. And Ethan and two partners of his who were friends of his started one after Duke's death. Well, by the way, I think before the dog, dogs barked there, I was about to tell you, I just remember saying the name Duke because uh, John's name was uh, Marion, but then when when his heir, Airedale died, the dog's name was Duke, and uh, a lot of his neighbors and friends just said, you know what, they just named him Duke also, they said, and they said it was more masculine than, than well, Marion which, again, was my mother's name. But you know what? They had no idea, speaking of masculine, what what John Wayne would become. And he wasn't even that... Uh, when he finally got named John Wayne, he, he wasn't even... He didn't even know his whole life how to answer to John. Or when people would say, Hi, John! And, he, and he'd have to just blink and think about it for a second. But he, he was... He loved the name Duke, and all his friends called him that. And... Uh, Folks, they started something. His son, Ethan, uh, John didn't uh, live long enough to see this get done because after so many great things he he did, but uh, to, to see the distillery form. But uh, Ethan and his friends did, and they called it. You can check this out, by the way, on the Internet because I have. It's a lot of fun. DukeSpirits.com. And uh, we're going to put these on. There's uh, there's one for bourbon, boy, that, uh, hang on, I'm just, uh, oh, I was going to find a look at in the magazine. But you know something? They make it especially, intentionally, they, they put it in a round Western bottle. Western meaning, yeah, it was from the 19th century. It was the way bottles really looked. This one, they were all quartz and... Uh, I don't mean crystal quartz. I don't mean like geology quartz. They were a full quart, and they were round bottles. They were perfectly round, and then they went up and they had a cork in them. And so this one, Duke's DukeSpirits.com. Look at it sometimes. It has great articles and has great history of this and that. And boy, as soon as I saw that, I said, I want to, I want to get a bottle of that. And uh, by the way, the prices they they made for them were were not crazy. You could uh, they were thirty four. I, I can't remember exactly thirty four dollars, roughly a bottle, which is pretty good. I mean, that's actually like far less than some of the big scotches go. And in any case, that's because John Wayne also said, "No, I want this for everyone. Uh, you know, I want it to be where everyone can go out and get a bottle of this and see what good bourbon tastes like." And uh, then, though, they just made, I think, I think I'm going to still see you and see if I can find this out. But so far, what I've come across on the website there and in the ads, they, I think they're out of it. I think. I could be wrong. So take a look at it, by the way, and get one for yourself if you can. But I think whatever they made, 
they're out of already. They they were made in small batches, one for bourbon, one for brandy, and one for tequila, which sounds like a pretty good weekend in Vegas, by the way, right there, or just two nights of whooping. And uh, in any case, I'm bringing this up because, you know, a lot of these fellas in those days used to drink so much. I mean, more than we think they drank, and more than we drink, even when we were in our wilder days. And I mean, you know, uh, uh, John Wayne in a lot of his movies, he wasn't really drinking, and his characters weren't really drinking in those movies, but he was mostly teasing Victor McLaughlin about his drinking in those movies, and they were great friends. And in fact, it's funny, he would tease Victor McLaughlin about his characters and how much they drank, and this was, by the way, this was after the two of them just left a bar to do the scene. So, oh, folks, so many of those guys were so wild. Jackie Gleason, I remember, because I loved the guy, and uh, I didn't, I'd know him, we hadn't met personally, but Jackie Gleason, for goodness sake, if, what a, as an actor, comedic, dramatic, as a, a poet, as a, as a writer... And uh, he was one of those fellows who would have, he could compose music and score it, too. So when you see an album in those days, in the 60s, Jackie Gleason's Christmas songs or or something, that he really did write them. But at any rate, he was, uh, the fellows in those days, in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, could could really drink. And they, they did. Every night, Jackie Gleason would have dinner at 21, and he would almost all the time he'd go there alone, and they knew him for crying out loud. He was such a big star and at that point. He never needed a reservation. He never needed anything. He'd walk in. They'd sit him at his table, Jackie's table, and he didn't order anything. Every single time he walked in there, which is every night, they'd, you know, four minutes later, they'd put a big, juicy steak right in front of him and a bottle of bourbon. And they left the bottle. They didn't take the bottle away. And every single night, for him, though, it was steak and drink, but hold the steak. They said he would drink that whole bottle. And these were quarts. And he would sit there and blast through it, and he'd sit there and smoke and drink and never hit the steak. That's just the way it was. And uh, they... It's funny, both John Wayne and Jackie Gleason died at 72. But I remember when friends would say, when Jackie Gleason passed away, and they'd say, oh, poor Jackie, 72 isn't so old. And I would always say, hey, if you can live 72 Gleason years, you've done all right. That's like 150 for anyone else. Now, they weren't trying to be loony or loopy. It was the way people lived. Did they drink more than we drink? Yes, they really did. They no kidding around did. And, you you know, you've seen that even when they show a little bit of it in movies. You know, you enter someone's house, so, oh, it's good to see you. Can I get you something to drink? They, they would. Everybody was always drinking and always offering drinks. Boy, oh boy, those movies, though, the John Wayne movies, to me, The Searchers, McClintock, The Quiet Man, True Grit, the Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, In Harm's Way, Comancheros, The Apaches, She Wore a Yellow Ribbon, uh, Rio Bravo. It was a terrific movie. Rio Lobo and 
These were all so good. There's so many, and they're all terrific. And because, you know, they weren't just drinking a pint of beer or a can of beer. This was real drinking. This was He-Man drinking, not showing off. That's the way men drank in those days. I remember uh, seeing the, reading a story about Richard Burton and Peter O'Toole, who, of course, was one of the greatest actors of all time, and they could drink. This was the way men drank in those days. You know, uh, a lot of the greatest actors, uh, <laughs> I guess they were English and Irish and Russian, but I mean, they would drink. They would really drink. And uh, no kidding around drinking. And uh, I remembered uh, this from reading about uh, Richard Burton and Peter O'Toole in, uh, oh, I can't remember the name of the movie. It's about uh, the uh, the 13th century and Richard Burton plays King, I think it's Henry II, and, uh, I, but, I'm, but I'm not sure. And Peter O'Toole plays, oh, for crying out loud, Plays very famous, became a priest, then then became an ambassador, the first ambassador that was ever ever in business, that was ever used, that ever worked as an ambassador, you know, making treaties, I mean, real ambassador work, and risking his life. But at any rate, uh, uh, Richard Burton and Peter O'Toole said to each other, they hadn't worked together before, and each one knew the other one was a big drinker, like a big, big drinker. And they said when they started the movie, they wanted to, to, you know, do a good job. And they said to each other, you know what? On this movie, let's make it great. Let's be great. And let's not drink. No drinks. Not one drink. Let's both get on the wagon. And they both agreed. That was terrific. And then, they, as the story goes, though, a month into the movie shooting, which was done also in foreign lands on all you know, on beaches and deserts and in mountains. And uh, after a month, they were doing really, really well. And they were sitting on the horses in between scenes and they had their swords out and they were just chatting. And then one turned to the other and they both just said, yeah, we're drinking tonight. They both just knew that's what the other one was thinking. And they started, they went out and, well, they didn't stop. That was it for the rest of the movie. Another couple of months of well, Burton and O'Toole. And uh, I bet those local restaurant and bar owners were happy they changed. In any case, you know what? I'm I'm happy with the way these guys did this. But you know what? I think this guy is terrific. I love what he does. There are some pictures we're going to put up there that are just... You know, that holy macro looks of not only John Wayne as what he became and, uh, you know, how tough he was, but him as a young football player. Good Lord, I'm looking at Colonel Jeff and I were looking through this before. This is the one of him as a football player. And uh, he had a scholarship to USC. And you look at this picture and really the first thing you think is, holy mackerel, I don't want to line up against this guy. And he's not even trying to look tough. It's just John Wayne and just natural. There's a holy macro quality to it. So in any case, folks, I, well, I know that and you know that. If you haven't seen the Alamo, see it. And I know that too. And 
We know the same things, as you know. Homer is Homer. Pluto is a planet. John Wayne is John Wayne. And so remember, as always... If you walked out of bed today and had a job to go to and someone to come home to who cares about you, folks, the game's over and you've won. And that's the truest thing I know. Be well and we'll see you here next time.